so we're going to be in Ephesians, of course, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 13. Uh, we're going to get into the actual prayer that, uh, or some of the prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians in this first chapter, but let's go back a little bit to what we shared in the last time. Uh, so we'll start there in verse 13. In whom ye also, after ye have heard the word of truth, and I skipped over trusted because, again, as I said in the lesson we did on this, it's not actually there in verse 13. In whom you also, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the, that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And I just love that phrase, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and we're going to stop there we won't get that far but uh, in the last session we did we dealt with redemption and we did so the redemption of the purchased possession and in the process of looking at that we went to jeremiah um, basically we dealt in the chapters 30 through 33 and right now i'm doing a kind of a more extensive study of those chapters and uh, at some point, we'll talk about that to look uh, a little further at the reality that that is testifying of there, of the reality of the new covenant, the reality of our redemption that's depicted in those particular uh, verses in that prophecy. And the beauty of it was when Jeremiah bought his cousin's land because it is said he had redemptive right to do so. He had right of redemption as to that, that, that land. And it is written that when he bought that land, that he put both copies, because there was what was called a sealed copy and an open copy, or, or sealed and an open evidence of purchase, as it's called. He put both of those copies, the proof of the redemption, inside of earthen vessels. And the scripture says he put it in the earthen vessel and God told him to do this so that the proof of that redemption and the evidence of the purchase would remain in those vessels a very long time. And that's a way of saying basically forever that in those vessels was sealed the very evidence that the purchase has taken place, the proof that that land now belongs to him. And again, this is a picture of the redemption that 
that Christ has brought about. And what I want us to see and, 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 and rest assured in is not just that picture and how beautiful it is, but the, the fact that that picture has now come to a spiritual culmination in these earthen vessels. With Paul saying, we have a treasure in these earthen vessels. What is that treasure? Well, it's Christ, of course. But who is Christ in the light of this redemption? He is his presence. And all that that means is the, is the verification, or you can go to the, the meaning of the word there in the Hebrew. It's like a legal, the legal uh, document that gives full proof and evidence that the redemption has taken place, that the purchase has been accomplished, and that there's nothing missing with regard to it, that that thing is purchased completely. And I love the way in that prophecy in Jeremiah, it says that they measured out the money, measured it out to them fully. And it's like he's making sure there was not one thing that was missing as and wanting in the buying of that property so that it'd be fully ransomed, fully redeemed. But the proof of it was put in earthen vessel. And so the writings of that were the legally binding documents validating the authenticity of his ownership. The only, and, and this is the thing, the only valid documentation, the only authentication of our redemption, of our being bought, purchased by his blood, which is because of it being sealed was a transaction that could never be overturned, was inside of the earthen vessel. And that is important because it really, and, and recently I've been faced with some of these things, but it almost, well, it does. It makes me sad <laughs> uh, when I see people or hear people who have set their hopes and trusted or set their hopes and set their trust and are looking for the validation and the evidence of reality with their mind turned toward the earth investment. And they're not resting in the validating assurance of the evidence of redemption that resides within that vessel. They make the vessel the point. They make the vessel the, the be-all, end-all. What that vessel does, how that vessel is, the mannerisms, the all of it. And that becomes the point, We that thing we focus upon so much. But what I'm telling you is that the moment we were born of God, the proof and authentication of our redemption, the legal document that binds us to him and his purchase and binds him to us as the purchaser, is always there. It has been there from the beginning. 
And that's the only proof that there ever will be, because that's the only proof that is ever needed. It is God's proof to himself. He sees it there. He understands the fullness of that transaction, whether we do or not. He knows what happened. He understands what he did and what he wrought and what he accomplished. And that's why Paul in this letter will now pray for them because it demands this. It demands the soul to give itself over in full dependence to a work of God that will open the eyes of that soul in which and in whom fullness abides. And that spirit of God will open the eyes of that heart to see what is already there, to see what God has already provided, to see a redemption that is already settled and secured, a purchased and transaction that is already perfectly made. It is Paul saying, you're complete in him. Do you know that just because I've said it? No. You know it's true, and you read it in Scripture and know it's true, and the preaching of the gospel can only say, it's so. You are complete in him. Such is the case. This is so. Christ is in you. He secures the soul. He brings it to a completion and a fulfillment. But the soul necessitates the work of the Spirit that it may know what God has done. Not that such can be the case for that soul, but that the soul can see what God has done and what God has accomplished and what God in his grace has fully supplied. That is why Paul will now pray for them because he has just opened the floodgates of reality in his presentation here, just in these few verses, just a few sentences, he has just encapsulated the entirety of their salvation. He has just explained to them God's eternal view, God's eternal intent, and how it's accomplished in Christ and how they become partakers of it. He has brought into their view a, a absolutely glorious salvation, just in a few sentences. And yet he understands that that is as far as he can go. That all he can do is write how great it is. But he cannot make them comprehend or make their soul rest in the assurance of how good it is. That is God's job. That's something only God can do. It frustrated me for years that I couldn't do that. <laughs> I wanted to make people comprehend this so that they could rest and be assured in it. I wanted to make myself rest and be assured in it because I read it and I believed it. And that's wonderful. And that's what we need. But only God can make it known in to the degree that it is settled. It is a settled understanding of the heart that such is the case we comprehend as we are comprehended in that under in in, in the light of that revealing 
we don't comprehend so that we can be comprehended or know so that we can be known in that way. We know even as we are known. And that's what Paul understands because we put, you know, we put the vessel as the proof of this thing. And this is a, you know, when we, when we still look back at Jeremiah, it's an awesome picture of, of just Christ purchasing and being the indwelling proof of redemption, him being glorified Christ. this, you know, it says in Ephesians to the praise of his glory, the purchase of redemption or the, the, uh, what is it? The redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. It's speaking him being glorified in the culmination of his own will of his own purpose. This is, this is why the wording in Jeremiah is important. When Jeremiah is told to buy the land, he doesn't say buy it for them, buy it. So they'll be safe Buy it. So they can, you know, remain and, and, and keep going and not be destroyed. Speaking of Israel, Jeremiah said, buy this thing for yourself, buy this land for yourself. That's, that's an important part of the picture. You don't buy this for anyone else. I mean, this is a picture of Christ and his redemption. This wasn't for anybody else. We all think it was about me and about you. We partake. We are beneficiaries by the mercy of God. But this purchase was for himself. It was for him to have his will and his intent fulfilled. It was his buying this for himself to ensure it is secured for the people. It belongs to him. You see that? He didn't buy it to them just to give it to them. He bought it for himself. So it becomes his sole rightful possession and they benefit because it belongs to him. Now this, this gets into the question. I think, uh, you know, Julie asked me about the inheritance, his inheritance in the saints, and we'll get to that. That's a big part of the picture of that. That is his. And that's why it's secure for us because it's his and he abides in us. It's his and we are found in him. That's a beautiful picture to me. So, Paul understood the greatness and the eternal weight of what God had accomplished in Christ. And he understood what our being in Christ had bestowed to us. And in this, he wants to remove every essence of validation, every point of validation, all the assurance that anyone would still have in themselves, in the vessel whether they be a Jewish vessel or a Gentile vessel. I mean, just consider this for a moment in the mindset of the time. Okay. Cause you have, again, the Jews and the Gentiles in the mindset of this time in which this letter is being written. Just imagine you're a Gentile believer that has heard the gospel of salvation and you have in the hearing of the gospel now believed in Christ for salvation. Yet now you are faced with, or you're aware 
of Jewish believers, even Judaizers, who's in the midst of those people who possess a what you see to be a spiritual embodiment, or we could say even the, the actual Jewish believers, those who have believed in Christ, they have now received the spiritual embodiment of a historical relationship as God's people. So what they had hoped for, God had given them a hope for in Christ, they have now received. You being a Gentile didn't have such a prophetic hope. You didn't have a messianic hope. You didn't have a covenant. You didn't have a law. You didn't have any of this history. You didn't have them, you know, thousands of years of, of God using these things to speak to you and use you and, 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 you know, temples and priests and sacrifices and offering. You had none of that. Now in, in the mind of, you know, in, a, in, a, in someone's just, if he's trying to understand this with a natural mind and he's a Gentile Christian, now this would seem to give the Jew a greater level, a greater level of acceptance before God, even a greater status before God, right? Because as a Gentile, you had no such history. You didn't have the history that the Jew had. And this is why Paul was so adamant in Romans 3 to say, listen, we're no greater than they are. We had the advantage in that we had the law, we had the oracles of God, but we didn't believe and we didn't come to the end of those that law in Christ. So here's the point. There's no difference. Whether Jew or Gentile, we don't have an advantage over the Gentile. We're all under sin, according to the law. There's none righteous, no, not one. So he had to assure them of their sameness as far as that uh, state of corruption and death. Because to the Gentile, it may seem that the Jew now had a greater credibility because of all the history they had, because they had no such history. And Paul will say that in this Ephesian letter. But in these, in these words, Paul is wanting to assure them that the greatness and the substantiation of their salvation of their redemption, of their relationship with God has no regard to the vessel at all, has no regard to lineage or perceived legacy of the vessel, whether it be singular or corporately. There is no regard to that. It's not of lineage or, or any of that stuff. The only thing that proves that the soul's status is right before God is Christ being in it. That's what Paul is wanting them to understand. And then these verses, he has showed them that having Christ in you and you being in Christ covers everything. It brings in the full blessings of God to your soul. Everything that he ordained previously before the creation of men. God has now in the summing up of all things in Christ, fulfilled that purpose, culminated that will. And now in him, we are partakers of forgiveness, redemption, salvation, righteousness. And we are why? So that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. 
that is not something that can be substantiated by looking at the vessel. That doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's a Jew or a Gentile vessel, holy and without blame before him cannot be substantiated by either one. It has to be substantiated in another way. And that's what he's trying to show them. It is substantiated. The sufficiency of it, the evidence of it is Christ in you. So we begin to examine now what he writes on the heels of that. All of the beauty of this. And in the midst of all that he has said, there is a great need for the believer. In the light of such a indwelling sufficiency, the blessings of God, the redemption of God, there is an absolute need that that places upon the soul. And what is that? I now make mention of you having heard of your faith, having heard of your love to all the saints. I cease not giving thanks and making mention of you in my prayers. What is the weight of that prayer? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give unto you. That's an important part. He has to give this to you. This is not something you attain by effort. This is not something you work your way up to. This is not something you qualify for. This is a gift. This is a work of God wrought in you by grace. He has to give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I want to read this in another translation um, because just to show you that what he's praying for them is on the heels of everything he's just said, the weight of all of it. Ephesians 1.15, starting there. This is from the Weiss translation, uh, the English Standard Version, which is a more modern translation. We'll, we'll say something toward this as well, but I, I like what Weiss says. He says, on account of all of this, <laughs> on account of all that I've said to you, all of this great salvation that I've just described in a few sentences, I, having heard of the faith that is in Jesus, which is among you, do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in, in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of the glory, might give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And here's what he says, in the sphere of the full knowledge of him. Notice, for this reason, on account of this, so it shows that all of this is connected to what he said previously. So Paul, in the light of all of that, understands that what is bestowed of God in Christ now demands a miracle of God to take place, a work that only he can do in us. And we must submit to that. He knew his preaching couldn't do it. I love, you know, in Colossians, he kind of says the same things. He says, you know, this one who was the mystery whom we preach, the one whom we preach, but then he says, but whom God makes known. That's a, 
That's a fascinating distinction. We preach him, but God makes him known. That's important. Because you can take, listen, you can take anything I say and filter it, and you will always filter it through the concepts, the dogmas, the doctrines that you already possess, your suppositions, your preconceived ideas, your superstitions, whatever it may be, you're going to filter it. But guess what will bring understanding into your soul without natural filters? Christ revealed in you, the spirit of truth unveiling your soul to the truth that abides in it, showing you the anchor that holds you in place and describing the absolute glorious fullness of that anchor that will never move, showing you where you are and where you have been since the beginning, since you were born of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God shows you such a reality, makes it known. So he knows that he cannot take them beyond words, the glorious words that they are, and true words describing a true salvation, but only the Spirit has the ability. God alone must now show you how, how great this is. And he doesn't do it by teaching you lessons. He does it by showing you a person. He does it by making known the very one who is God's ultimate end in perfect form. And he's perfect in his perfection. Let's say it that way. The end of God's aim, the target that God was always pointing to because it was the end he always had in view from the beginning, right? He is the beginning and the end. This was always God's intent. God has brought that into the soul. And who does the spirit make known? That one whom God has put in the soul and made to be unto us full and complete salvation. Jesus says it. The one who is coming, that spirit, when he comes, he will take of me and he will show it unto you. He will take mine and show it, make it known to you. That's his job. That's his work. He would, he would, he, he doesn't describe who I am. He makes me known as who I am in you. There's no real words that can express what happened. Really. You know, we can use words like revealed and see and make known, but the work of the spirit shows us reality without filter, shows us reality without doctrine. He shows us reality without theological bents and ideas. He shows us divine reality as it truly is, leaving no doubt and leaving no argument. <laughs> There's no argument once you see reality in his face. There's a lot of arguments. Once you hear reality that comes out of my mouth or anybody else's mouth, there's arguments galore. There's questions. But once you see this one who makes all of what he's described in the first part of this chapter so, and he's going to describe all that you see as he goes further in this chapter and what it means for him to be revealed 
And I'm telling you, there is a work of God that must, the reader of this letter, all of us who hear the gospel, must fall entirely and submit himself entirely under the power of this spirit, under the power of God and his ability to make known and open the eyes of the soul and make us behold what God has wrought because what God has wrought in the vessel exceeds the vessel. See, that's why natural minds can't grasp this because it's greater than the vessel. It's not about the vessel. And the only thing we can conceive in these minds is something that is about us, something that has us in it and a part of it and a vital part of it at that. The one God reveals is his perfect will completely fulfilled. There's no missing parts here. And what I'm trying to get across is that's who's presently in us. And that's who keeps our soul in place, keeps our soul perfect, holy, without blame before him in love. But I'm telling you, when you see words like perfect without blame and holy, until you see the one that abides in you and makes that soul, get makes that so, guess what you're going to do? You're going to try to find perfect without blame and holy in yourself. You're going to try to find it and the evidence of it and the validity of it, proof of it in what you do and how you do it. When the validity of it is who he is in you. That is why salvation is said to be of God and not of us. And it's said that way in the light of Paul saying, this is a treasure that we have in earthen vessels so that it will be proof that the excellency of the power is of God and not of us. I want you to, I said that this morning in the service and I, I tried to hammer that to some degree. I want you to see that it never changes from that. That is the continual relationship that God has set up. That's the thing. That's the truth. The vessel is weak and fragile, but the vessel is a recipient of the mercy and grace of God in that it, in its fragile state, holds a treasure that is greater than the vessel, holds a treasure that keeps the vessel even in the midst of its earthenness, in its fragileness, in its weakness, so that it will always be proof that God is greater than the vessel and that Christ in the vessel is always greater than the vessel, so that the vessel has no other room to glory and boast except in the Lord who has done this work. And that's always true. That's always the case. It never changes. Never changes. The vessel never gets to a point where that's not so. Thank God. Amen. The vessel never graduates to being like the treasure. There is not, there is not one scrap of evidence that that's so, and there's not one thing that God will do to make the, the treasure like the vessel. He has, in his mercy, made the vessel the dwelling place of the treasure. And that's enough. 
And you know, when you really are able to rest in the absolute assurance and security that that's enough, that his presence is enough when you see him who is present, when you see him who's enough, when you see him who is sufficient, because Paul understood that as long as you have a desire toward the things of God, you will always try to reach those things in your own efforts, by your own works. That's why he's praying for them to see, for God to give them this spirit of wisdom. We'll talk about that in Revelation. Their heart would behold the one who makes holy and without blame, accepted in the beloved, all spiritual blessings in whom we have redemption. He makes all of that so just because he's there. Um, there's there's somewhere I was looking at this. We may not get to it because I'm rambling about, but in salvation, there's no such concept as practice makes perfect. It seems like we have that in the church, in the Christian community. Practice makes perfect. Do it more, do it better. Do it more often. Practice it. We practice our faith, you know. The practice doesn't make perfect in Christ. What makes perfect in Christ is Christ. His presence makes perfect, not practice. That's why the soul has to see him, because that is totally outside of the scope of man to grasp that, because we want something to do. We want something to have a part in. We want our hand to touch something so we can point at it and say, I touched that. I did that. No such thing exists here. That's why he must show you what is so that you won't try to do what already has been done. You won't try to accomplish by you, by yourself, what God has already accomplished in you through the presence of his beloved son. The only need is what he's praying for. It's not to be holy or be righteous or be blameless. It's not to try to get everything straight and get all your ducks in a row. It is to see what God has given, to see the gift of the grace of God, to see a salvation that exceeds you, to see a life that is greater than you, that God has given as a gift. And only God can make that known. And we're going to talk about that. But Paul says the same thing in Colossians. And it's almost like what I'm going to read here in Colossians is what we read in Ephesians, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 17, 18. It's almost he does it in the reverse order in Colossians. It's almost like you could take this in Colossians, turn it upside down, and it basically says the same thing as it does in Ephesians. It's just in the opposite order, basically. So let's read. This is uh, verse 3 of Colossians in chapter 1. He says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and your love, which you have to all the saints. Same thing he says 
in verse 15, right? But he says it in verse 3 and 4 here. <clears throat> verse 5, for the, uh, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a fellow, a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the spirit. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy. This is a, the result of being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spirit so that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience, long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Again, see how he's doing this in reverse, basically what he does in Ephesians. Uh, now, verse uh, 13, who hath delivered us, from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, he's going to say later in chapter 2, you are complete in him. Why? How is that possible? Because the Father's pleasure was that in him first should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by the rec to reconcile all things to himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth, things in heaven, you that were sometimes alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And then he goes into Colossians 2 and basically says the same thing about the, the understanding that he desires for them. Now, what he said in, in all of these chapters is speaking of a glorious work that God has done in Christ, and that we now, through being partakers of that, through the work of his Son, he has given us redemption, brought us into the kingdom of the dear son, uh, translated us out of the power or the kingdom of darkness, that now we are holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. What a salvation. And in the before that, he says, because of this, my prayer for you is that you would have a be filled with the knowledge of his will and wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then in Colossians 2, he goes on 
and says, speaking of those who, those people and those who haven't seen him in the flesh, he'll say, my prayer is that their hearts would be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, that to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father, who is Christ. That's how it's actually said. In a literal translation, you'll find it that way. To the full understanding or assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God the Father, who is Christ. Now listen, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is God's wisdom and knowledge we're talking about. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing, or we've said it before, plausible words, words that seem plausible to natural mind, like, hey, you know, believing in Jesus is great, but if you add this to it, it's even better. If Jesus is good, Jesus plus circumcision must be better. If Jesus is good, Jesus plus this work, this effort, this thing must be better. That sounds plausible because we just want to get, you know, increase and get more and more. And what he's trying to show them is when you got Christ, you got all of it. You don't need to add anything. So he's saying all of this is true. All of this is reality. All that I'm praying for is you'll come to a full assurance of understanding with regard to this reality, who Christ is, this mystery that was hidden, who is Christ? Because, you know, he's just said in chapter two, that's Christ in you, the mystery that was hidden. This is who he desires for them to know. The one who abides in them. Why? Because men will come to you. Men that want to manipulate and use you will come and entice you with enticing, plausible words that sound so spiritual. Do not allow them to beguile you. We were in South Carolina the other day, and actually John came, and he was there with us. We were there to see Richard together. and. You know, we had a couple of sessions while we were there. I spoke one and John spoke one. And if it was just, we didn't even talk or John didn't even know to the day <laughs> to that morning, he was supposed to even share, but, uh, he, you know, he talked about that you begin at the finish line, the whole the whole work of this salvation is that you begin the whole thing of new birth is you begin at the finish line. And what hit me when he said that, and I, you know, I, I, I have to say something, you know, I always have to open my mouth. And, uh, what struck me is here in chapter two of Colossians, he will say this, um, where is it? Well, I don't have it in these notes, but he says at the end of chapter two, he bit, let no man beguile you. He's already said, let no man beguile you with enticing words. Well, what does that do? 
He goes on and says, let no man beguile you of your reward. Right? By bringing in these things, these external religious works and the law and the holy days and the festivals, touch not, taste not, handle not. Again, bringing the earthen vessel in the view and saying, here's the answer. Let no man beguile you of your reward. What is that? It's a reward you already have. You look it up. It's a prize you have already received. Men will come and steal that prize from you and say, keep running. Because the prize or the reward there is actually the crown or the wreath that they used to put on a victor's head when he ran a race in the Olympic Games. They would put a wreath on there. Ahead to say you you're the winner you've won and paul is saying do not let men come and steal that crown from your head and make you think that you haven't won the race you have won the race because you've come to the goal you have begun at the finish line in christ jesus and that's the whole point here we're going to continually believe we got to keep running we got to keep doing we got to keep working until we see the finish line, until we see the goal that we have that we have reached in Christ Jesus, we have to see Him, or else we're going to still be deceived. We can still be deceived by some people who come in and say, "Keep running, not yet," and they'll point at a lot of things in you to prove to you. It can't be so yet. There's no way. There's no way you can be holy and without blame. Look at you. <laughs> I mean, come on. Look at you. You're a mess. You can't be holy and without blame. No, I can't be holy and without blame, except I abide in him who is holy and without blame. I am found in him, and there's nothing of me that is brought into this at all. That's the treasure. That's the beauty of this. And that's why a soul must see him. Because until we see him, there's going to be variables after var variables that can be rightfully pointed to. And we can agree with it and say heartily, amen. But when you see him, those variables, while still visible and present, can be overcome by saying, it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. That doesn't give men excuses to be idiots. It's saying there's an anchor that holds us because we are idiots. <laughs> there's an anchor that holds us because we are fragile earthen vessels. Please do not get on the train of hypocrisy to try to make people think you're perfect. Show them in your assurance that he is the perfection of this, not you. That your boast is in the fact that he's made unto you what you are not and can't be on your best day. See? But that type of assurance doesn't just come in hearing these words. It comes in seeing the word himself. It comes to see perfection embodied in another man, 
and seeing reality defined in the sight of God in another man and seeing that other man is your life. That's assurance. And that's what Paul knows they need. Paul understands the spirit of wisdom and revelation has to come to this. And let's talk about that just for a second, because when we're talking about the spirit of wisdom, of course, we have to go. There's a couple of places that I want to go before I stop just to show this. But in uh, First Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to talk about this spirit of wisdom. It's the work. You know, and, and here's the thing we have in the scripture, and I'm, I'm not going to name all of them, of course, but you have the spirit of truth, spirit of Christ, the spirit of life, the spirit of wisdom, all the same. It's Christ in you. Okay. Not a different thing. This is not a different spirit he's talking about. It's the spirit of God working in your soul, making known in you what he has done in you. Okay. So in the, in the light of all of these things, he knows men will take their suppositions and, and run wild with them. So Paul points them to the only power that's capable of bringing God's eternal view and wisdom and making it known without man's, you know, assistance. And it overrides man's filters. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's already talked about wisdom in chapter 1. We've talked about that a whole lot. And it comes down to the fact that Christ himself has made unto us the wisdom of God, being that he is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And that's the way that's uh, worded in a literal translation, because wisdom is kind of the overarching theme of the whole thing. This is God's wisdom that he has made Christ to be unto us righteous, you know, uh, saint, righteousness, justification, sanctification, and redemption. That's his wisdom. So when we're talking about the need for God to give to us the spirit of wisdom, he begins to talk about that spirit of wisdom in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and verse 9. According as it has been written, and I look, let me, let me go there in this, cause I don't think I wrote this down, but there's a portion that we need to look at. Um, in verse six of chapter two of first Corinthians, he says this, how be it we speak wisdom. Now, earlier he said, we preach Christ. We preach Jesus. We preach the cross. Same thing. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are what? Perfect. What a statement. But what is that perfection? He's just described it. Christ made unto us wisdom from God, being that he is our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's, that's why he can say he speaks this to those who are perfect. The word there is complete. We speak this wisdom among them that are perfect. And then he goes down, verse 9, and says, But according is written, what I did not see, ear did not hear, and upon the heart of man came not up what God 
prepared for those who love him. But to us did God reveal them through his spirit. For the spirit all things does search, even the depths of God. For who of men has known the things of a man except the spirit of that man that is in him? So also is the things of God. No one has known them except the spirit of God. And we did not receive the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is of God, so that we may know the things that have been conferred by God upon us. Now, the, that's the Young's literal translation. The Weiss translation will say it this way. Uh, the spirit is constantly exploring all things even the deep things of God for who is there of men who knows the things of the person, except the person, the spirit that is in that person in the same manner. Also the things of God, no one has known except the spirit that is of God. But for us, not the spirit of the world did we receive, but the spirit that is of God in order that we may come to know the things which by God have been in grace bestowed unto us, which things also we put into words, but not in words taught by human philosophy, but in the words taught by the spirit, joining together spirit revealed truth with spirit taught words. Now we've talked about that. That's a, a weak translation at the end of that verse anyway. But what he's saying is not a weak thing. It's important. We understand that when we are faced with this immense wisdom of God that has been culminated in Christ and in his work in our soul, that we have to understand the exclusive work and power of the Spirit of God in this matter. All of this is based upon you know, his previous words. That, that Christ has made unto us all things. Um, but the only one that knows the mind, the heart of the, of, of the man is the spirit that's in the man. So is God. The only one who can know what is the mind and thought and viewpoint and perspective of God is the spirit of God. This is the spirit that delves deep into the wisdom of God that no man can know. This is why the spirit of wisdom must be given to us. Now, in the light of that, I want you to see something. This is interesting to me, and it was always interesting to me when God, and we're going to go to Exodus uh, 28 for this. This is a testimony of this, I believe. In Exodus 28, this is <clears throat> when God is given instruction concerning the creation and the <clears throat> putting together of the garments of the high priest and the priesthood. And um, and I always found it inter interesting that specifically stated God had to impute something to these craftsmen. 
they were already craftsmen in gold and silver and, and all of the things that they did and stonework and all of that. But God had to give them something for them to be able to make these garments, for them to be able to even make the garments that testified of Christ, God had to give them something important. In Exodus 28, verse 1, Take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. That's the name of these garments. They're the garments of glory and beauty. Verse 3. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now notice first, he says, speak to those who are wise hearted. Now see, these words can be construed and interpreted to say, well, these natural men have natural wisdom and talent as to the craft that they, that they do, the craftsmanship that they are, you know, experts at, or they have an acquired uh, wisdom in these things, and that they were so practiced at their craft and that they, you know, possessed a, a wisdom concerning the way to craft these garments, but that's not so. God leaves no room here for interpretation. God says, speak to those who are wise-hearted, and he defines it. Who are the wise-hearted? Those whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. That's a lesson for us to understand this. That if it was necessary for those who were given the task of constructing the garments of this high priest, which were only going to be used, I don't say only to dismiss it, but were to be used for testimony, testimonial purposes that were meet, meet, that were uh, means to merely testify of a coming salvation, of Christ in his coming. If they needed the spirit of wisdom to be given to them, to just make the garments of testimony. What do you think is necessary for us who actually abide in him and are accepted in him? God, those of us who are not dealing with testimonies and garments made by natural hands, we are dealing with an eternal priesthood that has consummated every testimony. And we stand in him who stands in the presence of God for us, holy and without blame. What must we have? What is necessitated for us who have come to the fulfillment of those testimonies? God must unveil our hearts to his wisdom. 
His exceeding wisdom must be made known by the Spirit of God so that we may know who is our salvation, that we may know reality defined in another man and not in ourselves, that we may know that the standing before God holy and accepted is not due to our performance, but is perfectly due to his perfection. That only comes when you see him, because then the assumptions are done away, the suppositions are removed, man's you know arrogance is removed, and God's view of all things comes into full view of the heart. And you see reality defined as God defines it. You see reality defined in the holiest of all. You see it defined in a perfect man, not in men trying and attempting to be perfect. What was needed for them just for testimonial purposes is needed for us. We must have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And this is not talking about God making us wise. This is talking about God unveiling to us his wisdom, his knowledge his view of all things so that we may see things as they are and not just suppose what they are and try to define them as we would always define them humanly. Right. Uh, I think it was sparks that says, you know, we, we think humanly upon divine matters, Well, that's exactly true. The seeing of Christ takes the humanly out of the equation, and it's a perfect view straight from God. And that's the need. Again, not so that we can have these things, but so that we can rest in the things that we have because he is present in us. And what worthy of this calling. You know what that means? Stop trying to be anything, but know him as everything. That's how you walk worthy. You stop trying to be what he already is. You stop trying to perform and produce what he's already performed and is. That's walking worthy of your calling. So, all right. Well, all hearts and minds are clear. Yep. <laughs> Eyes closed, no one looking around. Um, <laughs> all right. Love you guys. See you. Love you guys too. Love you guys. See you on the okay, night. Bye. Bye. Love you have a good night. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good to see everybody. Bye. Same bye. here. Bye bye. bye, -bye.